the kids make their way to their classrooms, we can go ahead and welcome Ron, who's going to uh, teach this morning. Thanks, Lainey. Thanks, thanks, thanks. See you later. Uh, have fun, you guys. Bye. See ya. Not one wave. Not even from my daughter. Bye. See ya. We love ya. Thanks for flying with us. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Nice to see you. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, super thankful that you guys are, are here. Um, you know, for me, I, I think I would have thrived uh, about 100 years ago when life was really slow. You remember when, when, when you've read stories or a history book or seen an old movie? Wouldn't it have been great when life was slow and you only had to interact with like three people ever. Oh, I would have loved that. That's why a few years ago when they opened a new road in town, the Yavpi Connector, that's my favorite road. You know where it is. It's that little road that connects from 89 up to Target. The name is my favorite because it sounds like a part of your urinary tract. And then when you get on it, they didn't connect 89 with Target in as much as they opened a time portal in which all time stands still. Have you driven this road? The, the speed limit is 12 miles an hour. And then you round a bend and there's a sign that says speed reduced ahead. How is that even possible? We were driving uphill to go to Target. We looked at each other. We said, we got to go to Target. Uh, what do we have going for the next three days? Because we're going to take the YAVP. We left on Thursday and arrived the following Saturday. It was a long journey, and we're just creeping up the hill. I got lapped by a grandma with a walker. She passed me. We were going so slowly. But that's why I think when I look back on, on old technology, because everything's getting faster now. Everything's so fast and so quick. I, I, don't, I don't care for it. It's forcing us to interact with way too many people all the time, constantly. I would have loved the telegraph. The Morse code, you know, where you're just communicating with the dashes and the dots. Think of all the excuses you could have had with your friends or your family. Didn't you get my dashes and dots? No, sweetie, I only got the dots. I, I, I didn't know what you were saying. It would have been fantastic. In my lifetime, um, we, we grew up with phones that looked like this. This was the, the telephone that we had. And I loved it. It's the rotary phone. Because if you're not real familiar, it was so spectacular. You, you stuck your finger in the first number that you needed to dial, and then you rotated it all the way around. And then you pulled your finger out, and while it made its way back to the beginning, you could go make a meal, you could clean the toilet, and then you came back, and then you dialed the second number in the seven digits. It was wonderful. And with this, no one could get to you unless you were home. You had to physically be there when it rang. And if you were, 
then bummer because you had to answer it and then actually talk to someone. Fast forward a little bit and we finally got phones with buttons and then we also had attached to it the answering machine. You might be old enough, some of you, to remember these devices. Now these were a little easier to dial and then if you weren't home, then people would call and that tape would start answering the phone for you and people could leave you a message. And when you got home, you, you, you'd go, oh, I've been gone. I wonder if anyone loves me. And then you rush over to the machine and press play. And then somebody says, hey, Ron, this is... And then the tape would eat the machine. And, and you'd go, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to talk to anybody. It was wonderful. But now we've all got this going on. Every single one of us has a phone in our hand with us constantly. You are reachable 24-7. Isn't it horrible? It's exhausting. I was hearing somebody recently made the, the comment, you know, remember that time where it was before the internet and we didn't know anything? And because there was no, we just kept on not knowing anything, you had to used to go to a place called the library. If you're not familiar with the library, there were inside, there was all sorts of information in these things called books. If you don't know what a book is, there's sheets of paper with all sorts of writing on them, and it's covered in cardboard or leather or whatever, and if you didn't know something, you had to wander around in here looking for the info, right, for the right book. There was a Dewey Decimal System. I don't know who Dewey was, but he'd figure out a whole system, and you could, if you could find the book with your information, then you actually, guess what? You had to read the whole book to find the one little piece of info that you were looking for. It took forever. Then we got the internet. And at the beginning of the internet, we had dial-up. And some of you remember dial-up because that was, that was where it all started. It used your actual phone line. And it made horrible cat-dying noises when you tried to connect. And after 48 days, it would connect to the internet. And then it would take you another 16 days to find the information you were looking for. The problem with it, because it used your phone line, if someone called you 17 days into looking for the message you were looking for, it would interrupt your internet search and just say goodbye. And you had to spend another 16 days looking for the info. Oh, these were the good old days. That was when life was actually rich and, and good and fun. Now, again, on our phone, you have instant access to absolutely anything you want. Keep calm. There's an app for that. You can get to anything at any given moment in a split second. Our culture today is so incredibly fast-paced. Some of the results, though, now are we are in a spot where we want a quick fix for everything. We have incredibly short attention spans. We want the entire picture, the whole picture of what is to come for our entire life, and we want it right now. 
A couple of years ago, I read a book that really messed me up. And it was speaking specifically to pastors, but it's so true of all of us. And the author in it made a comment that I'll never forget. He, he said, most of us want to do huge things in famous ways as fast as we can. Today, we want to know everything, fix everything, and be everywhere all at once. That's most of us today. The real problem with that is that's God's job. That's not my job. But anytime you and I have the ability to assume part of God's job, take over part of God's job, think that maybe we would be better suited for God's job than God himself, we are on really, really thin ice. And so this conversation that we've been having about some of these qualities and characteristics of God that we've picked up over the years that are not true or accurate, that should be erased, some of the things that we might need to erase come from us assuming God's role. If you and I believe something about God that gives you the feeling that you could do a better job than him at it, whatever that belief is probably needs to be erased. If you start to think, God, you're just insufficient. God, you're ignorant. God, you're not good. Then what I tend to do is fill in the gaps. God, you're insufficient, so I'm, I'm going to fill up what you were lacking. God, you're not enough, so I have to fill up and make for me and my heart and my soul what would be enough because you're insufficient. God, you're ignorant. You don't really know what's going on, so I'll stick to me. I'll stick to my friends. I'll stick to the culture. I'll stick to the media because obviously they know more and better than you do. God, you're really probably not good at your core, based on the evidence that I'm seeing, based on my understanding, you're not good. And so I'm going to go find the things that are good as a substitute for you. And the problem with each of those steps is that you and I start to create a pathway toward building idols in our lives. And this is really what Paul encounters here in Acts chapter 17. Where we were last week, we started the first half of Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts 17. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible if you're not real familiar. We'll finish in the second half of this chapter today. Paul uh, is taking the gospel to different places, and sometimes it's received well by people, and other times not at all. And now he's, he's uh, fled from one place, quite honestly. He's ended up in Athens, Greece. And he's waiting for some ministry friends, Timothy and Silas, to join him. But in the meantime, he's, he's surveying the landscape of what's going on in Athens. And it's haunting to me the similarities between Athens, Greece, in Paul's day here, are hauntingly similar to what we're facing in our day and our culture here today. And so look at Acts chapter 17 Verse 16, 
And it says, Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled. Look at why. His spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with those who worshiped God, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, and you might have heard it referred to as Mars Hill. It started really as a court um, and then became this kind of influential uh, center of debate and discussion. They took him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on, listen, nothing else but telling or hearing something new. It's an interesting culture. When he gets there first, what he's overwhelmed with are how many idols there are. Now, they would have erected statues and whatnot to uh, little g-gods that they believed in or false gods. But just kind of a good, simple reminder for us, when it comes to what an idol is, and an idol, really at its core, is something that we create. An idol is something that we make to kind of get something from. And yet at the same time, while we create something to make us feel better or get something from this fake God or this idol that we're worshiping, it also consumes a lot of our time it can consume resources. It can consume focus. And today for us, our, our idols can be anything from the flesh uh, to fame to material possessions to the number of followers that we have. I mean, you, you name it, there's a whole bunch of things that we have created to kind of get something from, a good feeling from, a quick fix from, you name it, but then they end up consuming us and requiring quite a bit from us. And you can see why that would be troubling to Paul to look around and see that so vividly all around him because what he knew is that how in the world is something that we create going to satisfy the depths of our heart and our soul? And it, I think it was breaking his heart. And so it is here today. I, I, I think about how many times I chase after idols and worship things that can't really do anything for me. I create them. I'm trying to get something from them. And yet at the core, they're still occupying a lot of my time and can never really do something for me. What an empty, empty journey. Well, Athens in their day, you can kind of see it here. Athens was basically the intellectual and religious capital of the Greco-Roman world. And so when Paul walks in, it's 
highly influenced by um, educated people and uh, philosophical people and kind of spiritual people or religious people of all different sorts, kind of new agey before there was such a thing. And then they loved anything new just to discuss and, and debate and bat around different worldviews. A worldview answers a set of questions. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Who made us? Why are we here? Etc. And they just loved the discussion of it. They didn't really want to land anywhere. You guys, especially in younger generations, I think this is really something for you to watch out for in particular because there's kind of a cliche out there that says if you uh, stand for nothing, then you'll fall for anything. And, and what's challenging culturally today is, is that the minute that you do stand for something, you can be attacked for it. But what I'm watching a lot, I watched it in my life, and I'm watching it in younger generations, is I don't really want to stand for anything. I'm going to hedge my bets on absolutely everything so that I can't be accused or attacked or called out or say I'm, I'm wrong. But in the, that's what's kind of going on here. They just want to have this endless conversation and debate. People may land in one particular category or another, there's all these different philosophers. There would have been many different types. The two prominent ones are mentioned here, Epicureans and Stoics. Now, oversimplifying this a lot, if you really want to do it, then go do some study. But Epicureans were people who believed at the root level that the chief goal of life was just pleasure. Pleasure-seeking was their chief goal. And avoidance of any sort of pain or discomfort along with it. Sound familiar? The Stoics were kind of almost the opposite. It was kind of an avoidance of any sort of pleasure. And for them, morality was the key, but the, their morality was kind of separate or divorced from any sort of relationship with God. And I just look at some of the stuff going on there and start to think about us. I know for me, and I look around in our culture today, how easy it is for us to worship a whole bunch of created things today. I look around and see a whole bunch of people who seeking pleasure is their chief goal in life. Avoiding pain is the chief goal in life. I look around and I see people who are trying to be moral, but they're living by a morality that they just made up. There's a lot of moral people out there, but what they base it on is just their standard. And functionally, when we get to that place, it's like saying, I don't need God. Or functionally, I can play God. And again, the minute that you and I start to believe that you and I can play God, we've missed something massive about the one real God. When we start to get duped into thinking that we would do a better job as, or he's dropped the ball over here or over there, and I need to pick it up, my goodness, we're in trouble. And so now what Paul does is we look down in verse 22. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Now Paul's going to go in and make an address 
to these philosophers, these intellectual, educated people. But what he's going to do is he's going to force them to consider some things about the God of the scriptures. He's going to force them to reconcile some things based on what they've been saying, uh, stuff that their culture says, even stuff that they think or philosophize about. And he's going to connect some dots with them about the true God. Now, as we dive into this, you know, I think we're right on the verge of having spent just enough time the last couple of weeks deconstructing some of the unhealthy stuff about what we might believe about God. And that, that, there's a time and place for that, but we must reconstruct with the healthy stuff too. And that's why I love what Paul puts a framework in here about the character and nature of God. And so I would just encourage you, maybe you haven't known uh, God that long. What Paul says here about the character and nature of God is so foundational and so key. It's not rocket science, but you can bank on this. And I'll tell you this right off, the stuff that is described about God right here, take note of it. And then ask yourself the question, could I have done any of these things? This is what it says about God. Could I have done any of these things? Have I ever done any of these things? And just kind of frame up to, to see, compare yourself to God in this equation. And any part where you're kind of stepping on God's toes, that's probably the stuff we want to uh, shove off the table entirely. And, and so take a look. If you've walked with Jesus for a while, then maybe there's just an encouragement or a refresher. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So there's temples and shrines erected to little G gods that they believed in or had created themselves to worship as, as idols. But then it turns out a couple hundred years before this, this massive plague had ripped through the area and wiped out a whole bunch of, of people. And kind of in the aftermath of it, some of the philosophers and religious people had an idea. They sent out sheep, and wherever the sheep laid down, they sacrificed that sheep to the God that was nearest by, the temple nearest by, as a way to kind of appease their God their little G God. But if a sheep laid down where there was no nearby temple, they sacrificed that sheep there to an unknown God. So it's this interesting thing of going, well, we don't really know if this works. We don't really know if we believe in this stuff. We don't even know who it is that we're actually worshiping or is this appropriate or should we? Or I don't know if God can really be known or not. And yet Paul steps in to connect some dots. Look at what he says. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And then now here comes this rapid fire, awesome set of things right from the word about the character and nature of God. And I just ask for you to, with each of these, just to go, do I, do I trust God with 
what he said about himself here? Do I believe this? You know, there's a weird moment where Jesus is interacting with this, this dad whose boy is sick. And while they're interacting, the, the dad asks, the, asks of Jesus, if you can heal, then please, would you do something for my little boy? And Jesus says, if I can, of course I can. And I love the father's response. The father responds this way. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Does that ever resonate with you? Lord, I, I believe this, but if I'm honest, that belief isn't really bearing itself out in my life or I'm still struggling to believe entirely. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe after each of these, you kind of make that your, your prayer. This is what it says about God. And then we're going to say, Lord, I believe. But Lord, help my unbelief. Help these areas where I have trouble fully trusting you in this regard. So look at what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it. That's a good starting place about God. The God who made the world and everything in it. In other words, God is the creator and he's the author of history. You're not the author, I'm not the author. He is the creator. He created all the heavens, all the earth. He created you, he created me and everything in it. Do you receive that? Do you believe that? I know that sounds rocky, but there's, there's a whole bunch of people that don't believe that he is the creator, that he's holding it all together right now, that he is who he says he is in, in the word. Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief in this area. The Lord made the world and everything in it. Next, look, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord. He is the Lord. Lord means master, ruler, controller, in charge. Means sovereign. Means he's in the driver's seat. He's calling the shots. Do you believe that he's in control? I know that this will test when you survey the landscape of what's going on in the world today. Here's a rubber meets the road sort of moment between what you believe about God and what you see going on around us. It appears as if everything's out of control, correct? But God is the Lord. So we, we have to reconcile those two somehow and come back and say, Lord, it doesn't look like there's much control going on. Lord, I, I believe you are Lord, but help my unbelief because there's a lot gunning for my trust that you're in control right now. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And then look at this. And does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Precious friends, do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much he wants to be in relationship with you? Do you know how much he values you? What a treasure you are to him? He wants to be in relationship. He loves you. But he doesn't need you. 
And he certainly doesn't need you to run the universe. This is huge. God is self-sustaining. Do you know that? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a relationship of persons. And he's in perfect unity with himself and not lacking anything. That's amazing. Which also means that when he created everything, he didn't create me and you because he was lonely and needed some pets. He had everything that he needed. He's self-sustaining. He, he's, he's in charge and he's going to work his sovereign plan. God has plans and promises and he is the king in authority and he's going to carry out those plans. Listen to me now either with us or around us. But I can't stop his plans or his promises. You can't stop his plans or his promises, even when you're disobedient. Praise God for that, right? He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need us. Look as it goes on. It says, he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. (laughs) The breath that you just took, the one that you're going to take next, you were able to take because God allowed it. Do you believe that? (sighs) Thank you, God. (sighs) Thanks, God, for another one. God's our provider. Even the stuff that you have provided through your talent and your hard work ethic and whatnot, where did you get all of that in the first place? From your creator. It all goes back to him. He's our provider, our creator. And every breath that we take, it's because he allows it. Lord, I I believe that. Help my unbelief in times where I don't. Verse 26. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. In other words, God has placed you at a specific time in a specific place. God in his sovereign plan has made you and made you a character in his story. And in his sovereignty, he's chosen to place you right here and right now in Prescott, Arizona in 2022. You weren't born two, two centuries ago. You weren't born in a, in a you might've been born in another continent, but you don't live there now. You're not dwelling today in Africa or somewhere else. God has fashioned you, made you, placed you at the specific moment in history and and given you a purpose within his story at this moment in history, at this location in the world. If you don't believe that about him, you'll have a very difficult time believing that about you. And this is so key for me. Lord, I believe that you have placed me here. And now, I know there's a lot of you that don't like where you are here and now. 
Okay, I get that. I've had seasons like that. Doesn't always say we're going to like where we are, but it doesn't mean that God hasn't placed us there. And if he's placed us here, it's for a specific purpose or a specific reason. Then verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Mm, Children, this is, (laughs) God's not far from us. My dear second dad and professor and mentor talked about the same word in the Greek for breath is used for wind, is used for spirit. And it's this kind of cool word play. Breath, wind, and spirit, using the same word. That when God gives us spiritual breath, resuscitates us when we're born again, and gives us his breath, breathes life into us. It's this word play with breathing the spirit of God into us. Which is also the same word for wind, which is kind of a good equivalent for the spirit because we can't see wind, but you can see the effects of it. You can watch it blow a tree. You can watch it dispel demonic pollen from the trees like it's been doing the last couple of weeks. My goodness, this is brutal. Breath, wind, and spirit. You know, Jesus is closer than your breath. And so maybe if you sometime soon have to stop to catch your breath. Remember, God's as close as your breath. When you run out of breath, remember God's as close as your breath. When maybe it gets down to 40 degrees next Tuesday like it's supposed to, and you can see your breath. Stop and remember that God's closer than your breath. He's not far from you. How often does the enemy attack that belief in your life? He's not far. He wasn't far from these people in Paul's day, and he's not far from you even now. And then he wraps it up, verse 29, 28. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Human beings are incredibly artistic, incredibly imaginative, incredibly creative. Why? Because we're made in the image of the creator. It's not just because it's inherent in us. And I love the truth that your God, my God, fashioned us. I didn't fashion him. How great a God would he be if I made him up? And so there's something really joyful and refreshing to me in really leaning into what God has revealed about himself here. It's so core to me in my day-to-day to know I didn't make the world and everything in it. Did you? I'm not the Lord of all, last time I checked. I need other things, including everything God has. 
I'm a very needy person. I, 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 I couldn't orchestrate where and when I was born. Could you? Only God did that. Only God can do that. I can't fashion myself. Only God can do that. And so there's such huge joy. The more and more I'm understanding who God is, I hope there is for you too. I'd put it this way, lots of joy right here. We wrap it up with a lot of, of joy. Joy first in our limitations. Do you know there's joy in your limitations? You were never meant to know everything. Go, ah, that's nice. You were never meant to fix everything. Do this. You were never meant to be everywhere all at once. Isn't that nice? That's God's job. That's not your job. There's joy in our limitations. There's joy when you and I don't have to think we're the main character of this crazy story. You're not the main character. He is. You've been invited in by the author, and Jesus is the main character of the story. And then once we get that, ah, there's joy in understanding that we're not needing to take over God's job. We could never take over, over God's job. And if there's some quality or characteristic that we believe about him that makes us think we should take over his job, we need to question that belief and we need to erase it. He's more sufficient than we could possibly imagine. He's more aware than we could possibly imagine. And he's more gooder than you could possibly imagine. No, it's not. <laughs> gooder is a good word, though. You know, last week I invited you into a little homework or practice if you felt like it. And it was basically just to open up the book of Psalms and read one, two, three a day and jot down some qualities or characteristics that God's word gave you about the character and nature of God. So that at the end of the week, you could have a list of here's what I know to be true about God. And uh, I did it. I, I had it on my phone. I opened the notes on my phone and then I had my Bible. And then when I read through and I saw a quality, I jotted down in the notes of my phone and the next day I did a couple more. In the week I got through 21 Psalms and here's my list of what I know to be true about God based on his word. Just in one week, he watches over me. I wake because he sustains me. He hears when I call. He puts joy in my heart. He hears my voice. He's not pleased with wickedness. He blesses the righteous. He hears me when I pray. He saves the upright in heart. He is a righteous judge. He has made the heavens and is yet mindful of mankind. He has crowned me with glory and honor. He reigns forever. He is a refuge for the oppressed. He has never forsaken those who seek him. 
He will never forget the needy. He is the helper of the fatherless. He encourages me. He loves justice. His words are flawless. He is a refuge. He counsels and instructs. He will not abandon me in death. He examines me. He is a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, and my salvation. He is worthy of praise. He thunders from the heavens. He saves the humble. His law is perfect and refreshes the soul. He gives victory to the anointed. His love is unfailing. And he is strong. Amen. That's just in 21 Psalms in one week. I'm going to keep going. Because I'm going to have quite an understanding and therefore a really clear relationship with my God by the time I wake my way all the way through the Psalms and jot down these amazing truths about him. Now this in and of itself, knowing that this is true and having the list, that's a blessing. But this was never meant just for head knowledge. This again is about a relationship with the living true God. And so for me this week, this is what I know to be true about him. But here's what's happened this week. Just this week, just since I saw y'all last time, we've been sick. We've had horrible allergies. I got verbally hurt by somebody. We got icky, icky news about somebody that was influential in our life years ago. My grandmother, who's 93, fell and broke her collarbone and it hit her head on Thursday night. We were in the ER with her. I've had a deep stress about hearing the things that a lot of you are dealing with just in the life of our church. It's my anniversary today. Amen. 18 years. So the entire, the entire week, except for my anniversary, hard. That's just one week. And my normal tendency in a week like this, except for the anniversary, would be, God, why? God, where are you? God, you're not even. God, I don't understand. God, eh, eh, eh. but not now. Now, God's erasing some of that junk and then reframing it, reconstructing it with the truth of who he is. Now I'm able to say, God, even in a week like this, God, you are my refuge. You are my strong tower. You are my provider. You're going to bring justice. I mean, all these things. Lord, I believe. Would you help me in my unbelief in this journey? And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for revealing who you are to us more and more. In your word and through the church and precious brothers and sisters and revealing who you are in creation and 
giving us this opportunity to have a relationship with you is so, so humbling. And so, Lord, we, we're just thankful that we can walk with you and you can just continue to reveal more and more of who you are and who we are and help connect those dots about why that's so key. Bless you in our day-to-day. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Nate said that was a top 10 sneeze he's ever heard, so. There's so much health as we talk about these attributes of who God is and who he is not. And I'm processing in our culture at this time, there's so many different things to process, so much data and information. If you're looking for a job, you go online and you read a description. Or if you're looking to hire somebody, there's a recruiting service that tells you all these uh, data points about that person. Or if you're dating, there's an online platform for that, and you find out information and all of these different things about people or items or whatever it might be. But if there's no eventual connection point, It's all for naught. It's meaningless. It doesn't have uh, value. And so it's the same, actually, as we think about Jesus. If all we do is talk about what he is like and how he can provide or love us or save or whatever it might be, uh, eventually there's not value in that. And that's where the the beauty of of Jesus comes in. We're going to continue to worship by taking communion here in just a moment. And as we take communion, we remember the, the cup the blood that Jesus has spilled, that he allowed to be shed for us, and then the bread symbolizing his body, that Jesus was real, that he walked, that he died, that he rose, and that he still walks with us today. So in the next moment, feel free to come and take the elements of communion to recognize that these aren't just attributes and data points, but Jesus is a real person who is alive and well and walking with us. Feel free as we continue to worship during this next song to take the elements and to know that you are united with Christ. Let's continue to worship together. I love that takeaway. that when uh, we feel out of breath, remembering that um, God is closer than our breath. And uh, you know, if we see our breath um, during the winter night or in the next couple weeks as it gets a little bit chillier, remembering that he is closer than that breath. And um, the very character and nature of God, he is powerful. <laughs> he has authority beyond all things that we understand and comprehend, but he is also compassionate and kind, loving. What a what an incredible opportunity. What a gift for us to be loved by such a God. So with that, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. Thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time, welcome. Glad you're able to tune in. Uh, if you want to jump over to restorationaz.org to learn a little bit more about who we are. And um, yeah, we say this every time, but we mean it. Remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.